Amos, a book of the Bible. So, that's tricky. Now, another one. Another one that is tricky. Go down where it says, from Los Angeles to Honolulu. You see that? See the last two letters of Honolulu are L-U. You see the first two letters on the following line. A-E. So you see Luke in there. Well done. All right, you guys have eight minutes, okay? Go to it. There are 29 of these. All right, guys. Time flies, but we're having fun. So right now, put your pencils or pens down. We're going to figure out which table aced this. Now, on the uh, on the big screen, you can see some of the answers. I broke it down into four segments, okay, so we can make the print nice and big. So here is slide number one. You see Amos and Mark. You see Luke. You've got John here. See that? Then you've got Joel. Anybody get that? I got Joel. Okay, a lot of you did. So those are the only ones on that first slide. Let's go to the second one. Oh, anybody get Axe up there? I did. James? Ruth? Oh, where's Ruth? All right, there's Romans. R-O-M-A-N. That should be S. Titus? Matthew? Genesis, Philemon, an often forgotten book of the Old Testament, New Testament, Philemon, we're all okay, third slide, Chronicles, Daniel, I don't know if anybody got Nahum, that's a, that's a tough overlooked book, I know, that's tough, the rest are fairly easy on this segment, Lamentations, Revelation, Timothy, Samuel, and Numbers, Malachi, Peter, Anybody get Peter? Man, okay. Exodus, Kings. That's it. Should be 29 of them. You guys calculate them. Anybody got 29 out of 29? We're good, but we're not that good. I did our confirmation retreat with sixth graders, and they got all of them, and they found two that I didn't even know were up there. So uh, I'm totally kidding about that. So Hopefully you guys got some. If nothing else, it's just kind of a neat way to uh, to spend time with one another. So put those down. You guys can keep them and work in your free time to figure out the ones you didn't find. I'm sure that's what everybody's... Now, I've been at uh, RUMC now for just a little over a year. Uh, I truly love the church. My family loves the church. We love the community. I hope that... Um, by the grace of the bishop, that I'll be here for a long, long time. That's my prayer, and that's my goal. Now, one thing I would like to uh, to have everybody pray about is there are a lot of great ministries for which we're raising money, but there's something I think that the church really needs. This would really help us. So this is what I'd like to do to raise money for this. Uh, maybe some of you who plan this retreat, maybe you can help out because you guys are on the ball. This is what I'd like to do.
the United States House of Representatives, they agreed to a resolution that honestly surprised a lot of people. It was downright scandalous in the eyes of many, while at the same time it affirmed a lot of others. Now, he signaled, or this, this resolution signaled the praise of a man who had an important role to play in the history of our world. Let me tell you a little bit about it. His name is Antonio Meucci. Anybody heard of Antonio Meucci? Well, you're about to. Okay, let me take you back to the year 1806. A man named Antonio Meucci was born in Italy. He moved to Havana, Cuba when he was in his 20s. Now, at that time, the use of electricity was gaining rapid usage. And so Antonio Meucci had a theory. This is what he wanted to figure out. As electronic impulses are given to the human body, maybe he thought the shock would provide some cures to some common ailments. So he wanted to use electricity to calm, you know, headaches, or spasms, or even other diseases and things like that. Now, I don't know if his shocks ever worked one way or the other, but his patient would sit very patiently in a small room that he used as a lab from another room. He didn't want to be in the same room. I don't know what that says about him, but from another room, he would send electronic shocks to patients who were hooked up to devices that he had kind of concocted. When the patient received this tremendous shock, the man or the woman, the patient, he or she would scream violently in pain. It's probably not a good thing to do. If you're a doctor and your patients are screaming all the time and you don't even want to be in the same room with them, something isn't right. But he had a, a brilliant mind to a certain degree, and this is what he wanted to think about. He noticed that even though the patients were in another room, they were quite a distance from him, it sounded as if the screams were right next door to him. I mean, the, the, the patients were from maybe me to you guys, but when he heard those screams, it was like somebody was standing right here, screaming right at him. He did more studying, and he came to the conclusion that sound could travel through electric impulses. Sensing potential, he moved from Havana, Cuba to Staten Island, New York in 1850, and he wanted to develop what he thought was going to be a, a really cool innovation. Now, Mayuchi could not afford the $250 that was needed for a definitive patent for his talking telegraph, as he called it. So in the year 1871, he filed a one-year renewable patent, and so... That's what he did. Three years later, he couldn't even afford the $10 to renew it. He sent a model, and he sent technical details to Western Union. You guys familiar with Western Union? A huge deal back then. So Miyuchi, he sent them really a model of this thing he devised, sent them all the technical details of what they needed to do to make it work. But the company failed to even get back with him. They didn't want a meeting with him. That's what he was hoping for. See my work, call me in, let's get rich together. Western Union failed to do that. In fact, after a while, he, he you know, went to the company and said, okay, if you're not going to meet with me, maybe somebody else will. Go give me my stuff back. They wouldn't do it. Didn't do it. Two years later, an inventor by the name of Alexander Graham Bell, he worked with uh, Meiji to a certain degree. He filed a patent for the telephone. He became quite the celebrity and made a lucrative deal with Western. So Antonio Meiji sued. He was nearing victory. The Supreme Court actually agreed to hear the case and fraud child, fraud charges were actually um, initiated against Alexander Graham Bell. But Meucci suddenly died in the year 1889. The legal action, therefore, had to die with. But in 2002, 
150 years after the death of Antonio, the U.S. House of Representatives agreed to a resolution acknowledging his work as the inventor of the telephone. He had an important part to play in the work of this world, and he was getting the recognition <laughs> felt he finally deserved. I think that was pretty... Now, with that said, you and I were created to do something impressive as well. It may not be inventing the telephone, but we're going to read scripture that talks about the ways in which God wants you. We continue with our theme this morning of under construction. God continue to refine us, to grow us, to challenge us so that we can live out the life that God has. So we're going to look at a passage with which some of you may be somewhat familiar. It comes from the book of Ephesians. But let me give you a little bit of backstory. Now, Paul was writing to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It was one of the five major cities of the Roman Empire, Rome, Corinth, Antioch, Alexandria, and Ephesus. Paul started the church in Ephesus about three years prior to that, and he had um, lived there for, for three years. And so uh, the letter to the group at Ephesians was not addressing any specific problems, <laughs> per se, but he wanted to describe to them the importance of the church. That's something with which, or for which, he was incredibly passionate. Paul said that the church should obviously uphold the, the highest of moral standards, and they should also care for one another. Nobody would do with that. But in that day and age, you have to understand, the pagan gods, they, they were off in the horizon somewhere. Maybe they created folks, maybe they did some stuff. But for the most part, these, these fake, these pagan gods, uh, they were inactive in, in the lives of people. They were off in the distance somewhere. Maybe you could sacrifice a baby, for example. That actually was done uh, quite rapidly and, and quite rampantly at certain places. But, but the gods, maybe you could appease them somehow, but they were off in the distance. Maybe you could work your way or earn your way into the good graces of their pagan god. Uh, but Paul is writing to, uh, to the church in Ephesus and to really believers everywhere now, and he's stating something that back then would have been nothing short of scandalous. He's saying that our one true God is really different from anything that you've ever imagined so far. That God, okay, we're not trying to appease him from afar. Rather, God is active and present in our lives right now. God pours out his grace upon us, and that's how we're saved. We're not having to sacrifice an infant to appease a God off in the distance. Rather, God lavishes us with his grace and his right now. So, with that said, we're going to go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Like I said, a lot of you are probably familiar with this. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. You are God's handiwork. Think about that for a <coughs> Created in Christ Jesus, good works, which God prepared in advance for us. So God knows all. God created all. And so God has created to do good works because of the grace that God has lavished upon <coughs> you and because, therefore, of your subsequent faith. And so this passage is declaring some really powerful news about our salvation. In the, the, the passage that we just read, Paul is writing about the need for salvation. Even before the passage that we read, Paul is setting this passage up relatively nicely by talking about how we experience that salvation. In some eyes, in the eyes of, let's say, John Wesley, for example, he referred to that as a justifying grace or justification. The word justification literally means to be made right. You are justified in the eyes of God. You are made right. That's pretty, empower, pretty powerful to, uh, to think about. Paul is saying, for 
prior to this passage, said that we are dead. We are dead in our sin. The good news is that we don't have to stay there. The unbeliever is not sick, Paul writes. You're not sick, okay? He's dead. You don't need resuscitation. I mean, you need full-blown resurrection. That's what he's talking about. That God is saying, man, you guys are, are really, really out there somewhere. You don't need to be resuscitated. To the contrary, you need to be resurrected, okay? You need, you need something new. You can't go back to the way you've been. So salvation, Paul is saying, comes through grace. It's not of you. It's not of me. It's through our faith and not by our works. Again, that's probably not news to anybody, but the truth is, in many cases, we often forget about that. It's not through our works, rather it's God's gift, it's not mankind's origination. No one can boast, because the truth is, none of us are able to do anything that earns our salvation. All the glory goes to God for bringing about our means of salvation. Now, maybe some of you, when you think back to uh, younger years, maybe just right now, that, that, you know, people that in some ways think that maybe they are responsible for uh, the grace of God to a certain degree. Maybe they, they try to live a pious life, or maybe they try to do all the right things. Maybe in some cases they're a little bit self-righteous, because they think that they're a little bit better than, than other people, because they do things with such a high moral standard. And, and nothing wrong, obviously, with that. That should be the way that we live our lives, not to experience or achieve salvation, but to live out our salvation, to live out once we've been saved by the grace of God, to live our lives by a godly and not a fleshly way. There's a recent study, a poll, a lot of Americans, and 77% of Americans agreed that people must contribute to their own salvation. 77% said, yeah, my salvation is going to be as a result of something that I do. Now, what we do might be really helpful, it might be good, maybe it's a good example for others, but, but the truth is, it's all saying that that's not what you do to experience salvation. 52% of Americans said that good deeds help them earn a spot in heaven. Is that true? According to Paul, it's not. Does that mean we don't do good works? No, far from it. The book of James talks a lot about faith and deeds, that our deeds, those aren't the things, our works, those are not the things that earn God's favor. It's through our faith that Jesus is who he said he is. Okay, it's our faith in God. God pours out his grace upon us. Over and over over again, friends, Scripture tells us that it's not about our works. Our works don't get us into heaven. We're saved by our faith. Now, the good works, I hope, are going to be something that comes after our salvation to live the life that God wants us to live. But that's not what saves us. It's not about what we do. not about what we do. It's about what just has done and about what God is still doing. There was a, a widower who just lost his wife, and he moved into kind of an upscale retirement community. And on the first night he was there, he was walking down this long hallway on the way to the dining hall. And as he was walking down the hall, there was a, a little tiny old lady who was walking the other direction, walking towards him. And as they got closer and closer, she stopped. She raised her finger and she looked him right in the eyes. And she said to him, you look like my third husband. You look like my third husband. He didn't know what to make of this, and so he politely looked back at the woman and said, Wow, how many times have you been married? And she said, Twice. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come to you in a second. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it takes a while before we kind of get... Sometimes I think maybe it takes a while to fully live out what God has in store with us, for us, through us. You'll notice the word handiwork 
in here. Many translations say it's the word masterpiece. In Greek, they're very similar words. I mean, that's pretty impressive to think about, that you are God's handy. And in many cases, Paul knew that this letter was going to be distributed and read and studied by people who were not yet believers in Christ. They were not yet followers of Jesus, and yet he is still saying that you are God's masterpiece, that God has created you for something. Now, that means that you have to accept that grace, okay? It's just like a gift. If I walked over and I gave you a, a, a stack of money or a nice sweater or a stereo or something like that, I'm offering it to you. I'm going to lavish it upon you for free, but you have the choice whether to accept it or not. You have the choice to say, I'm not interested in that, or you can say, wow, I'll take that. What a generous awesome gift, that even before we say yes to that, that, that God is pursuing us. Even before we say yes to God, God is saying yes to us, that God, the scripture said, is pursuing us. Think about how radical of a concept that would be to people who lived in pagan cultures where you had to do all your best to, to somehow do something to uh, to earn your pagan God's good graces. And even then, their pagan God was distant and unheard of, and of course, we know not even real. And so how would you even know if what you're doing is really going to work or not? We have the assurance, the promise of faith and grace of what Christ is offering us. Truthfully, if the only thing that God ever did was to create us, that would be worthy of our praise. But no, God goes far beyond that. Not only does he create us, he refers to us as his masterpiece. Not only that, the scripture refers to believers as saints. And not only that, the scripture says that we are a part of God's family. And if that's not even far enough, the scripture says that you and I, as followers, of, as believers in Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God. Not only that, we are the heirs to God. Think about that. The great inheritance that God has in store for us. Not only eternal life, but God's peace and hope and joy and presence right here, right now in our lives. God saves us, God rescues us, God heals us, God transforms us into the likeness of who? Into the likeness of Jesus, the likeness of Christ. How powerful is that? Because that's something none of us deserve. I don't care if you've been a nun all your life. The truth is that none of us are perfect, okay? All of us fail when it comes to being in the presence of a holy and a perfect God. And so through Christ, we're able to experience forgiveness. But not only that, the scripture says that we have been given righteousness. Okay, not only are your, 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 your sins forgiven according to scripture, but you are made right in the eyes of God. That's pretty impressive. You're not only forgiven, that in itself is amazing. You have the gift of eternal life. By golly, that is so cool. You have God's peace and presence and the movement of the Holy Spirit guiding and leading and teaching and correcting you and me in this life. Now, but God is saying, you are able to be present in my sight. I am perfect and holy, but you're able to be here with me because of the work of Christ on the cross that not only took away your sins, but made you righteous to be able to be in my presence. And so the short passage up here, it's talking about two things, okay? We are saved from something. What are we saved from? Sin and death, okay? We're saved from something, then we're saved for something. From, we're saved for something. What are we saved for in this passage? To do good works, absolutely. To do good works that what? Bring about favor from humans among us or to earn praise from other people? Now, what are good works for? What should they be for? For the glory of God. Absolute good works are not for mankind, but they are for the glory of God. Now, when you read 
this, this implies this process or this progress of growth and maturation, okay? Just as we know that we're going to grow to be more mature as people, our, our son, for example, he's 12 years old, and already he's talking about when he gets his learner's permit in three years. <laughs> he wants to drive. And, and I'll be honest with you, maybe I'm not the best parent in the world. I remember reading a story of Billy Graham when he was a young boy. He was 13 years old, growing up in a small rural suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina. Grew up on a dairy farm. And, uh, and he not only was not religious, he didn't like going to church. His parents were very devout Presbyterians. He didn't want to go to church. He wanted to be a baseball player, pro baseball player. His parents made him go to a summer camp. And young Will, William Franklin Graham, he looked at his parents. He said, no, you can send me to camp. It's a Christian church camp. You can send me to camp, but I'm not going to like it. They sent him. Truthfully, he didn't like it. He spent all of his time mimicking the animated motion of preachers, made fun of all the young Christian kids there. He would sneak into the chapel after communion, and he would gulp down the leftover grape juice. But he, true story, wanted nothing to do with this Christ person that his family had been praying that he received for the longest time. When he was 13, his parents were asleep. He took his dad's car keys, and he drove the family forward through the streets of this rural suburban town until his family found out and his dad. So Billy Graham didn't start off being, wow, he's going to be the next big evangelist. Eventually, a guy named Mordecai Ham, who was an evangelist, came to Charlotte, North Carolina, gave a revival. It was there that Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. I share that story because I think about this young man who steals his daddy's car. Daddy obviously wasn't happy. Um, but the other day, our driveway is very small. It probably is the distance from here to about here. And um, our son has a basketball goal up against the house on the side of our yard, right over the garage. And so whenever our son and daughter, they want to play basketball, I have to get in the car, back it out so that they have room to play you know, by the garage. Well, the other day I was feeling very charitable. I was feeling very gracious. And remembering that story of Billy Graham, I'm going to beat my son to the punch instead of him stealing our car. I'm going to let our son drive the car the distance from there to here. I got in the passenger seat when we foretell nothing bad happened. Well, something did bad happen, but not anything as bad as you might be um, expecting. So our son got in the car, and somehow, in the space of this much time, went up on the curb and almost hit a tree. I mean, I have no idea how that happened, because there's like a, a little thing that's about that high, and somehow our son managed to get over it when he got in the car, you know, you and I, when we get in the car, we set the steering wheel straight. So, man, we're going to go straight. For some reason, he turned the steering wheel all the way that way. So when he pushed on the gas a little bit too hard, the car just went whoop, right up and almost hit a tree. My wife, Catherine, she was staring out the kitchen window. She saw all of this happen, showing that she doesn't fully trust my fatherhood instinct. She ran out, got her son out of the car, made him go inside. She didn't ask me to move the car. She asked me to get out of the car so she could get in the car and park it in the garage. I share that because our son, God bless him, he's uh, 12 years old, and he wants to drive. That's his thing. Obviously, that's going to take a while. I remember when he started playing baseball, he, he was scared of getting hit. He would be in the batter's box, bat in hand. The pitcher, before he even threw the ball, our son was backing out of the batter's box because he was so scared of getting hit. Okay, that was three years ago. Now, he's a, a pitcher, a left-handed pitcher on a travel team that goes all over the place. Um, I don't get to go see him because he's always off, it seems like, doing other things with baseball. But the cool thing is that, that he's grown, he's matured. 
And the truth is, that's what God is saying about you, and that's what God is saying about me, that, that we're continually growing, we're maturing. Is our son right now at the age of 12 ready to drive a car? No. When he was 10, was he ready to be a, a traveling baseball pitcher? Absolutely not. But through that, he's been challenged, he's stretched, he worked hard, okay? And, and through that, he's matured in so many different areas. One day he will be ready to drive. He'll probably be in his early 20s, but one day he's going to be able to drive. And the truth is that we all kind of mature through the years. I remember when I would start a new, new school year, and they would hand out your books. I was never good at math. They would give us our textbook. And I don't know why I did this, but I would automatically flip to the back to see the hardest thing that I would find in that book. And I would see all these difficult math equations, proofs, and all this stuff. And I was like, man, I am never going to understand this. But you know what? That was meant to be experienced later on down that school year. At the start of the year, yeah, I was so in, unprepared and so ill-prepared for that kind of stuff. But eventually, you know what? I did mature, and I grew to the fact that, yeah, I can finally get this. And likewise, there are things that maybe God is calling us to do. Maybe forgive that person that, by golly, you just don't get along with. Or maybe reaching out to, uh, to a child or a grandchild to, to, to show them what godly living looks like. Things that may intimidate us, things that may freak us out. But God is saying, no, you need to move in this direction. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the strength and open your eyes to what God wants us to do. So we know that we're going to grow. We know that we are going to mature, that we are works in progress. We talked about that yesterday. So with that said, we're going to do another session of your table time this morning. I'm going to show you a couple of different videos later on. But first, I want to ponder this question, okay? I dare say that all of us are Christians here, okay? We're all Christians, we're all believers. Maybe some of you have been believers for two days. Maybe some of you have been believers for several decades. Okay, but all of us in this room, I dare say, are Christians. All of us, okay, we've been assured, we've been promised the, the gift of eternal life in heaven. We've been promised the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit here and now. Okay, so with that said, ponder this question. What kinds of work might God do in the lives of longtime Christians? I've preached at jails, for example, at prisons, where there are a lot of people who aren't followers of Christ. Maybe they've heard of them. Maybe they've been given a Bible. Maybe their grandma prayed for them, but they're not believers. And it's been so neat to see them come into understanding what godly life looks like because they accept Christ as their Savior. They, they see their faith leading to their justification, that, that salvation. And it's neat to talk to these new guys who are new believers, and just, they talk about, wow, how their life is going to be so different. Okay, but God is saying, even if you're a long-time believer, your life is going to be different because of the work that I, God, am doing in your life. So, you've got four minutes to sit at your table. Okay, I want another spokesman later on to, to get up and just tell us maybe a couple answers you came up with. It's a tough question, I know. What kinds of work might God do in the lives of long-time? Okay, go at it. All right, let's, um, let's stop where we are. Um, the reason I pose this question is because very often we look at the Christian life coming from the vantage point, whether it's us or somebody else, the vantage point of somebody coming to know Jesus. We want people to be saved. We want to evangelize. We want people to come to know Jesus, to come and trust God. And that is amazing stuff. I mean, that's life-changing stuff. Heaven's going to be more crowded because of that kind of stuff. 
But it's also really important to understand this whole concept of Christian growth, of sanctification, of maturity. And very often, people could come into a retreat like this, and I'll be honest with you, I have not found this to be the case with this group at all. But in some cases, you may go to a retreat and say, you know what, I've been there, I've done that, there's nothing I'm going to hear that I don't already know. Okay, And maybe that's true, I'll be honest with you, I've done that at times. I've gone into groups uh, where I've said, I don't know what I can learn, I know it all, and yet, if I'm open to it, God will, will soften my heart to that, because that is such a wrong attitude to have. Because, no, I may know a lot of book stuff, I may have a lot of brain knowledge, but the truth is, I really don't even have that that well. But even if I did, God is still doing some new things. You've heard uh, before in the book of Isaiah, for example, it says God is doing a new thing. And so regardless of your age or stage of life, God is doing a new thing. So, what table would like to go first? Spokesperson, just tell us 15 seconds of what y'all talked about. Yep, we got a mic here, too. Start from the back. Who would like to go first? I'm not going to have a victim, so you got it, okay? We're going to come to you guys next. What kinds of work might God do in the lives of long time? The first thing that came to my mind was how so many have got friends in our circle that are ill, and ways that we can show Christian love, sharing when they're going through such a difficult path. Visit, pray, card, email, and open-minded about others in our care to embrace and learn about people other people's religion ethnic ethnic and to join have them join us say at job networking wednesday night dinner to for them to learn more about us and us to learn about them by living a christian life to show them by example the way a good Christian lives and to integrate and by our example and by our listening and learning to them and their ideas and where they're coming. Good job. Well done, table. Yeah. I like that. Good job. I mean, you guys next. Who likes it? Okay, you got it, sir. All right. We uh, had some various We had a lot of the same types of things. We talked about inviting people to our function church class. We talked about um, modeling the behavior we think we should be as, as longtime Christians. We also talked about sharing our stories and sharing our stories with others and listening to their stories and trying to relate our Christian experiences to those that may not have those. I like that. Very well done, guys. Who are you next? All right. Well, my Jeff. I got appointed spokesperson by Papa. We talked about we should assume the new role of being ambassador. We need to be an ambassador. We need to get across the bridge. We need to be out front what we believe in and where we are. And share the difficult situation you can be in when someone you've known all your life all of a sudden becomes a non And how do you deal with at a table where some people are believers and some people are not believers? And some people ask, they ask you the question, how can you believe even that the Bible is the word of God? And so now you've got to be remember, you have to play the role of Yeah, very well said. In fact, I was actually in a session on what it looks like to be an ambassador because the scripture talks about that. Because the time constraints, I didn't go into that. You did so eloquently and beautifully. Thank you for that because we are called to be ambassadors. Who's next? Well, there you go. We found ourselves focusing on family, uh, long-term loving relationships. Um, 
the hope that we can't live long enough and enough lives to see God working the lives and accomplishments of our grandchildren. So living with hope in that regard and asking ourselves how we can influence their growth and development and support our children appropriately in that way. Yeah, very well said. You asked God. Roger, you got it. When Jeff talked about being an, an ambassador, we have friends in our neighborhood that we're very close to, and they were asked one day, do you go to church? And the, the answer was, no, but we know Gail and Roger. <laughs> and they told us that. Okay? So I think we are examples whether we know it or not. That was a freebie off of Jeff. We found out that uh, the older we get, probably the more patient we get because we have been through experiences and we can help other people do it. And we can be at peace because we've experienced a lot of things that would have really wrecked us earlier in life. We find that it's less about me and more about others. Um, we found out we can't do everything, but we can do something. Amen to that. We look for ways to use our experience. Over the years, we used to go to Mississippi on mission trips. We don't do that now, but we work to send other people. Good stuff. And we're all a part of the body of Christ. Not every body part is called to do what other body parts were meant to do. And so that means that, yeah, maybe you're not called to go to Mississippi. You're called to pray for them and maybe support them and encourage and affirm them. But, but if God doesn't have you doing that, God obviously does have somebody else doing it. It used to drive me nuts when people would say, well, I don't want to be a Sunday school teacher, and I hate it, but I'm going to do it because we have no one else to do it. You know, <laughs> you know, the disadvantage to that is that, you know what, you don't want to do it, you don't feel called to do it, but by doing it, you're blocking somebody else who may have the call to do it, to do it. And so that's one of the things we have to remember. We're not called to do it all. We're called to be a part of the body. All the body parts work together for the good of the body. We do what we're called to do for the glory of God. Okay, who has it going? You guys? You got it. You got it. Got it. They're pointing to you, so I don't know if that's good or bad. All right, you're getting recruited. You're a victim, okay? Wait a minute. I have what did I do? Sometimes I have a little jewelry. And they'll go, oh, I've never done that. And by the time I spend the day with them, do it. They've got all this new experience. They feel so good about themselves, so they're really open to talking to them. And the other thing is, they're gone. They go, oh, I can do that. Well, when I get through with them, go, oh my gosh, I've got to see that. And they go on to other things, uh, such as my son. Oh my gosh, the first is brutal. <laughs> and now he's 13, and he's hitting the ball over 200 yards. It's like, oh my gosh. And you think, I've given him something that he's going to use. Absolutely. Well done. That's good stuff. Everybody going? Y'all good? Okay. I now, think of, I think of Larry's box, Project 10. That's cool. I love that. That's yeah. so cool that you're doing something that God's calling you to do that's going to bless and affirm others. You want to talk about it? Uh, okay. Well, I uh, do... Uh, Stand up. Microphone. <laughs> I do... I do uh, Craft project and the thing that really turns them on is treasure box. They most of them have never uh, used a saw before or done anything. I should say because their dads don't don't know a left-handed screwdriver from a right-handed screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there was a difference. <laughs> <laughs> 
But we threw this treasure box and cut it out and threw it all together and excited about it. It's fun. It's fun. And of course, in the meantime, you learn all about them, like how many brothers and sisters they've got, whether their mother is expecting or not, and all kind of fun things like that. So it's kind of fun. And they sign Good stuff. Them. Thank you. What? They sign it. Oh, yeah. If they sign it, you know, they, they, they demonstrate that they can write their name on the bottom of the box. So it's their box. And they get to paint it. So it's you know, it's been said that um, people who are non-believers, maybe 5% will read the Bible. The other 95% will read. It's powerful to remember that if you have neighbors, maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not. Maybe they've been turned off by the church in the past. Maybe they're just, you know, it could be a lot of different things. But if they know that you're a follower of Jesus, would they say that you're a better neighbor? Because I, I hope so. Sadly, it's been said that there are two reasons why people aren't Christians, either because they've never met one. <laughs> so, with that said, I love I love looking at pictures. I love other people's pictures. I really honestly like looking at people's vacations. They're a lot of fun. And so when I was kind of mapping out what we are going to talk about, my, my wife said, Joe, why don't you show some pictures you've grown up? And that's kind of a neat way to show the maturation process, the growth process. And and I said, no, I don't like that idea. But she said, no, that's a brilliant idea. So I want you to do that. So with that said, something that is totally embarrassing for me to do. So we'll move through it really, really quickly. Oh, sorry about that. I hit the wrong. Could be like deja vu for some of us. Here we go. You tell I was quite the natural athlete. Middle school. Senior picture. That's my grandmother. That's the day I preached at her church, and she died the following week. She was so proud that someone in her family was a pastor. I love that. This is my marriage on June 18th, 2005. Yeah, just so that's good stuff. Okay, with that said, the Bible tells us that each of us, we are a work in progress. We've talked about that at nauseum as far. But in a culture where we crave this instant gratification, and I want it now, we often neglect one important theological point, and that's the fact that we are being transformed, okay, in the likeness of Christ. That means it may take years, it may take a week, whatever it is, that we're being transformed. That implies continuous action, and it's not a one-time event, okay? It keeps coming and coming and coming. Because of sin, what, what happened? We, we've fallen away from God, okay? The image of us has been marred, but God in his infinite love for us Okay, through scripture, it tells us that God's plans haven't been thwarted by your rebellion or my rebellion. To the contrary, we may give up on God, but God doesn't give up on us. God hasn't given up, God hasn't given up on me. <clears throat> so, with that said, we look at Romans 12, verse one and verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Come back to that line in the Holy and pleasing to God. I hope my life is holy and to God. At some moments, sadly, it probably isn't. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. Paul is writing to the Christians in the capital city of Rome. He spends a lot of time focusing, obviously, on God's grace. In fact, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are centered around that theme, God's compassion and God's grace. Okay, with that said, he talks about presenting our bodies in other translations. We offer our bodies 
as living and holy sacrifice. Notice it's not a plural word. It's not holy and living sacrifices, because that would imply a lot of things that we do. Instead, a holy and living sacrifice. One thing, all of our life, every corner of your life, every season of your life, every compartment of your life is meant to be a holy and living sacrifice. What do you think that means? It looks like to be a holy and living sacrifice of God. The word body, let me start with that. It doesn't simply refer to our flesh and bones, but rather it talks about the totality of who we are. So when we read the word body in this context, we can kind of interpret it to mean or translate it to mean all that we are, all that we are. So remember that for a moment, okay? So Paul says that we are this body, we use our body as a holy and living sacrifice. That means, Joe, all that you are, that is your holy and living sacrifice. How you doing on that, Joe? That's what God is asking me. In the Jewish law, as a way to pay the price for one's sin, that family or that individual would sacrifice an animal. But Paul was telling us that things are no longer the same with that. It's no longer about a dead animal or a sacrificed animal, but rather it's about offering our bodies, remember, all that we are, our bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, this statement by Paul, that would have shocked people who heard this, even angered some people who heard this. You see, uh, the Romans, they were brought up under the studies of Plato, the philosopher. Plato taught that the human body is merely an embarrassing encumbrance to the soul. The soul is who we really are, says Plato. The body is just something that holds it captive, holds it as a prisoner. They even had a line, Plato did, in the Greco-Roman culture that says, the body tomb. In other words, nothing is good with the body. It's dead, but it's holding captive the soul, spirit, inside. The body is of no importance, according to Plato and the Greco-Roman culture. So Paul is saying, okay, don't get caught up necessarily in the body, per se, the way that Plato looks at it, but the body represents some, something external, something on the outside, and not just something on the inside. Paul is totally going against the grain of the culture. He's saying that the body is an outward indicator of something bigger inside. So as Christians in kind of this Western culture, we talk about becoming a Christian and giving our hearts to God. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 12. But, but Paul would counter that a little bit. He would say, no, it's not just about your heart, Joe. It's about your total, your body, all that you are, inside and outside, all that you are. It's the outside actions, Paul says, that displays our faithfulness and our obedience to God. It's the outward body uh, that is the way, in many cases, the Holy Spirit is dictating what we do. And it's that outward action that is truly your worship, okay? Your worship, Paul says, is not just on the outside and just what's on the inside. It's both. Our salvation, we know, is not based on our actions. It's not based on our works. It's about our faith in Christ. But worship is therefore our response to God's grace. And that flows from all that we are, okay? No worship to God, which is purely inward, because that means externally you're not doing anything to live out that faith, okay? It's abstract, it's emotional, maybe stuff inside, but true worship expresses itself in concrete acts of service and a life that is holy and pleasing. So Paul is stating in this passage that we are called to do things that are pleasing to God, more to the point, all that we do should be pleasing to God. So when we read the word pleasing here, it means what? Pleasing for, first of all, pleasing to whom? Pleasing to God. 
Absolutely. And sometimes when we do things that are pleasing to God, it's not something that's pleasing to the rest of our culture. In many cases, when we do something that we know is pleasing to God, it goes against the grain of what we want to do. Our flesh wants to do things that sometimes aren't right. We're called to live lives that are pleasing not to our own flesh, but to God. He adds that our actions are outward stuff is our spiritual act of worship. They're combined inward and outward. In other words, he's saying that, that all of your life, everything you are, the body, remember that means the totality of who you are, inside and out. Your body is called to be holy and pleasing, and that is an act of worship, the scripture says. Worship is not about simply going through the motions. It's not what we do simply between 11 and 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Our, our, our worship is not about embracing certain words or actions or responses on Wednesday night or we have a Bible study with the It's about the totality of who we are. Our actions are an indicator of who we are, but our actions are indicators of... So, truthfully, we may be saying, okay, we're going to church and we're going to honor God and worship God between 11 and 12 on Sunday morning. But the scripture would say, not only in Paul's letter to the Romans, but... We have other examples, both in the Old and the New Testament, that tell us that all that we do is how we honor and please God. Not just when we're in the church building. Not just when we're in a Sunday school class. How you talk to your spouse on the way to church is an act of worship. How we treat the waitress at Sunday lunch is an act of worship. How we handle conflict is an act of worship. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, those are acts of worship. True worship does what? To God. How many times do I lose track of that, though? And, and I remember when I was uh, in my pre-ministry days, I would go to church. On the way home, my parents would call, Joe, how was church this morning? Well, it was good. I liked the music. The sermon was short. Everything was great. <laughs> or, uh, the music was so-so, and the preacher was all right. And so that's how I would judge worship. I liked it. If I liked it, it was good worship. But, but who am I trying to please? Is it myself? No. How do we do worship? It's about something that's to God. That inward faith and the external action because of it. I mean, that, that, when Paul writes to the Romans, that really is revolutionary stuff. People just have this mindset that worship is what takes place in the temples or the synagogues or the tabernacles. Worship was a deliberate action within the concept or the context, rather, of a certain place and time. I was saying something that is totally countercultural to the Romans. Our worship extends to how we live our lives at home how we treat our kids, how we forgive our neighbors. In the marketplace, in the home, in the workplace, that is an act of worship, okay? We're talking about, yeah, we're, we're gonna, gonna grow closer to God because of our time together in here, and that's good. Uh, maybe you'll go out to lunch in Delonica and how you treat the waitress or the guy that cuts you off in traffic. That, truthfully, is an act of worship, as sad and frustrating as that might be. So, verse two talks a little bit about this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Who transforms your mind? Who, who helps with the renewing of your mind? The Holy Spirit. Absolutely right. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's his good, pleasing, and will. So earlier we read about the word holy. What does the word holy mean? Be set apart. We are called to do something that is set apart. Okay, not only that set apart from the rest of the culture, but also we're called to live holy lives. Lives that are set apart, not from the rest of the culture, but also from how our lives were before we knew Christ. To be a before and after kind of thing, where our lives are set apart from, yeah, the rest of the people out there, but our lives are called to be set apart from who we were before we had as our Lord and Savior. 
God calls his people to stand out, not to be non-conformists, not to be oddballs, but in many cases the culture did view them that way. But we are called to be focused on God and not of this world. So when God's word came to the Israelites, they were not living in some sort of isolated biosphere. They were surrounded by pagans. And so when God calls them to do something that was different, it was not God saying, okay, do this, do this. Uh, no, God is saying, I want you to do this because I want you to stand out from the rest of your culture. I want the rest of the culture to say, those people are the one true God's people. And by golly, we see them living out of faithfulness and trust, hope and obedience. Through Moses, God told them, do not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. When God led them to the promised land, was it a big vacant lot? No, it was inhabited by a whole bunch of people that didn't want the Israelites coming into their place. Uh, the, the Jewish people weren't Israelites, coming into their place. And so God was leading them and guiding them. And what did they have to do? They had to defeat the people who were there. In many cases, they had to live side by side with the people who were there. And so when God is saying, I want you to be different, okay, they're not just going to some cocoon somewhere to be by themselves. They're going to be meshed in with all these other people and all of these other pagan culture, pagan cultures, and God's saying, do not do what they do. Uh, when, when Jesus taught, he spoke about the Pharisees. These were the well-educated, socially acceptable religious leaders. They focused so much on outward behavior, but not really inward purity at times. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't be, okay? The culture says, hey, you want to be like that because they're these holy and righteous guys, but, but don't be like that because I know what their heart is like, and it's not pretty. We're not called to be chameleons that, that kind of blend into our culture or our surroundings. Rather, our lives are called to be what? Holy, set apart, different. We're not to form this world. We are to be transformed by God. Form and transform, similar words. I've never been good at grammar, but both of these words are what we call present passive imperatives. Well, duh, Joe, we know that. <laughs> a present passive imperative simply means a phrase that is not merely a one-time occurrence. It's a continued action that we go on, okay, don't conform to the world. It's not just a one-time decision. Yeah, I'm going to be different because I'm a follower of Jesus now. No, it's a continuous action that we must go on refusing to conform to the ways of the world, not letting ourselves be conformed, rather letting ourselves be transformed to God's will. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mindset or its mold. <coughs> let God remind you of how you're called to live because of the whole one mind, one's mind. It keeps on being made new by the spiritual input of God's word and prayer and Christian fellowship. One's lifestyle keeps on being transformed. You and I, we're continually being transformed. I think that's powerful stuff. As a, a pastor, I think back to my old church, for example. I was there in Canton six years, and, uh, and it was awesome. We had new people come into the life of the church, and maybe they had run from God, maybe they didn't know much about God, uh, but they accepted Christ, and, and by their profession of faith, they acknowledged that, yeah, Jesus is now my Lord and Savior, and, and it was so cool to see that, to see these professions of faith, to see uh, kids who, who were saying yes to Jesus, and that was exciting as a pastor, but you know what, this honestly was even more exciting for me when I saw longtime Christians who, who were finally coming around to realize that, yeah, they are being transformed, that there might be that, that cranky old man that sits over there by himself and people just kind of give him his space because he's kind of cantankerous. Uh, to see that guy realize, wow, God is transforming me so that other people look at him and say, 
oh my gosh, you know, he isn't too far gone. Or oh my gosh, that's not just the way that he is. Now he's being gracious and he's being kind-hearted and he's being different. That's the kind of change that really excited me as a pastor. That was good stuff. Because very often we look at, maybe we look at ourselves. Well, I'm, that's just how I was made. Or that's just the way that I am. And God's saying, no, that, that's not. That's not the way you are. I created you. And if I'm the one who created you, then by golly, I'm the one who can transform you to lead you and guide you and to mold you in a totally different way. That's powerful stuff. Now, you've got this uh, picture uh, that I gave you. Take a look at the picture. Tell me what you see. Anybody? Just shout it out if you... Uh, have an idea. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen this picture many, many times, and I have a different opinion almost every time. The man standing there is not the man. That's right. Who is the man in the mirror? Ah, but he is. That's right. Uh, Counter that. You guys are both on to something. So what do we see? Maybe he's hopeful. Then he'll become more like Jesus. Yeah, that's true too. That's right. And maybe he doesn't see anything but us being on the outside looking in. We see, man, this guy looks like Jesus. That's what we talk about, remember, being the, uh, the likeness of Christ. And so maybe that's what he sees. I, I think there are a lot of different translations, different interpretations, different mindsets of what this is like. Anybody else want to share something? Yeah? And he's kind of brought away from the outside, and he's inside, and, and he's looking in the mirror. Christ. The truth is that according to the scripture, that guy looking into the mirror, that, that, that should be you, and that should be me. When we look into the mirror, we can see the likeness of Christ. Not because we're perfect, not because we have our act together, not because we're going through the motions, but the scripture says that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so we're called to look more and more like maybe there's someone who's a, a longtime follower of Christ, but she has a bad temper. I don't know if that describes anyone you know. Maybe over time God chips away at that anger, something that set off that person before no longer set. One of the things that I talk about with my wife when I... Uh, first started in ministry, man, I was so, I would get so defensive. I would panic if somebody questioned anything I did. I would think, man, the sky has fallen. They don't like me anymore. And I would have just gone into some sort of spiral of anxiety and, and fear. And, and while they don't like me, and maybe I'm not a good pastor, maybe they're right. And so things like that would set me off. And I would just spiral into a place where, man, it would just ruin my day, maybe even my week. But you know what? Now, I'll call my wife and I'll say, you know what, somebody came into my office today and they were unhappy with something I did and, and truthfully they were wrong because it wasn't even my fault. It wasn't something over which I had control, uh, but they're upset with me. And you know what, Catherine, that would have set me off five years ago and now it doesn't. I mean, that's growth, okay? And I still have so, so much growth to go, but, but I can look at that as some evidence that God is transforming me. Uh, maybe there's someone that you know that they always have to be in control. They have to know exactly what's going on. They have to have all the information uh, before you go on anything. They have to make sure that they're not going to be out of their comfort zone. They want to know exactly what's going on. But you know what? Maybe they do go and they realize, okay, God, I trust you instead of my own need to control things. And I survive. That, that's growth. Or maybe you hear about forgiveness. And, and yeah, we know that it's what God is calling us to do. But honestly, we can't. When it comes to our own strength, we can't forgive someone who hurts us. That, that goes against our fleshly human nature. But, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, God does give us new eyes to see someone not as simply a bad guy who hurt us, but as someone who's created by God, God's masterpiece, whether we see it or not. And so maybe we experience the freedom to be able to forgive someone that, that two years ago, we, that's growth. 
Maybe you've seen slow change in your spouse or children or your neighbor or the people that's in church. That's growth. We look at someone who makes a judgment about something, or maybe they assume they can't do something, or they won't do something. We say that we're dismissing the power of the Holy Spirit. If, if going back to that example of my old church, that, that cantankerous old guy that sat over there, and people were scared of him. They tiptoed around him. No one wanted to sit with him. He was always so negative and critical, and, and, and people honestly. But, but when we say that's just the way that he is, aren't we discounting the power of the Holy Spirit? We are. Now, sometimes it's hard because of his actions, and truthfully, he has to be able to surrender to what God is willing to do. That That's his choice, but if we look at someone as too far gone, or that's just the way that they are, or I don't like them, and nothing will ever fix that, we're giving up on the power and the movement of the Holy Spirit. Because truthfully, the person that I am today, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, may not be who I look like a year from now, maybe a week from now. From the inside out, God is involved in the renovation of your life, the total transformation of your life. So, here's what I want us to do. We're going to do table time, okay? And I'm going to show you uh, two different videos. They're two and a half minutes each. How many of you remember Charles Kural, the newsman? Yeah, he used to do a segment for CBS called On the Road. He retired and he passed away, and, and there's a new reporter who's been doing this for the last several years. I honestly don't watch the CBS Evening News, but I like when I see one of his stories. I use a lot of these in Chapel Roswell because I refer to it as a modern-day parable. You look at it and say, what in the world does it have to do with Jesus or the Bible or with my life as a follower of Christ? And then I'll try to come up with something because I think the video is entertaining. I think it's powerful. It's inspirational. It's motivational. Let me find a message in there that I can use to talk about this. So with your table, we're going to show you two of these. And then at your table, you're going to pick just one. Do what we did last night. If you had to do a modern-day parable, if you could show this to one of your, your loved ones or a neighbor, how would you tie it in to what we want to tie it into? Okay, we all set. The subject of our final story was born when Woodrow Wilson did the White House. Fourteen presidents later, when Bill Clinton was in office, she decided it was time to get a job. And a whole lot of kids are glad she Steve Hartman on the road. They say you're never too old to learn. But here at the Sundance Grade School in North Point, New Jersey, they're proving you're never too old. See, my trade? Yes. They still move. They sure do. <laughs> That's home economics teacher Agnes Celeste. The kids just call her great. It's a nickname she comes by honestly. As the oldest living in America. I'm She turns 100 on Sunday. You know how old that is? Very, 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 very. <laughs> I don't think get very old like that, but I wouldn't think that Granny would do it, even without a wheelchair. Not a wheelchair, or any chair for that matter. No, the bottom of Agnes was in a full day, five days a week. This is a good job. She hasn't burned out on the job, partly because she hasn't been doing it that long. She was a homemaker most of her. My husband didn't really work, and so... He didn't want you to work? <laughs> he wanted me to watch it. So she did, and she watched the grandchildren. Then she played a lot of bridge. That got old, and she still felt young. <laughs> so Agnes started working at the one Today, she's so devoted to this. Wow. She hasn't even called in six since 90. <laughs> I just think she loves the children. She puts the love into her cooking. Can you taste this love? No, you can't taste well, but you can feel well. <laughs> and all the children love her because she's so nice, so compassionate, so she perseveres a lot. Oh. For those reasons, and a hundred more, today the kids threw her a huge birthday party. Not a retirement party, mind you. She's 
He'll be back on Monday and hopes to keep working for years to come. What else is there to do in life? Children make the whole world. Or at the very least, get some more make your day. Steve Hartman on the road in North Plainfield, New Jersey. Okay, that is story number one. If you guys want to do something with that, tell us how you're going to tie that into the Christian walk or the Christian life or whatever you want to go in that direction. Here is uh, so news report number two. Was born when Woodrow oh, Finally tonight, Steve Hartman proves that best friends come in all shapes and sizes. Here is tonight's Assignment America. When elephants retire, many pack their derms for the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. They arrive here one by one but stay here two by two. Every elephant that comes here searches out someone that she then spends most all of her time with. What are you doing? Sanctuary co-founder Carol Buckley says it's like best girlfriends. It's just like us. You know, somebody that they relate to, they have something in common with. Oh, I know about Ronnie. Debbie has Ronnie. Best buds, these two. Misty can't live without Delory. And perhaps the closest friends of all. <laughs> Tara and Bella, of course. <laughs> There's no other elephant around here? That's Tara. Just these two. And this is Bella. This is her friend. And her friend just happens to be a dog and not an elephant. That's hilarious. Bella is one of more than a dozen stray dogs that have found a home at the sanctuary. Most want nothing to do with the elephants and vice versa. But not this odd couple. They are absolutely <laughs> inseparable. When it's time to eat, they both eat together. They drink together. They sleep together. They play together. Tara and Bella have been close for years, but no one really knew how close they were until recently. A few months ago, Bella suffered a spinal cord injury. She couldn't move her legs, couldn't even wag her tail. For three weeks, the dog lay motionless up in the sanctuary office. And for three weeks, the elephant held vigil. 2,700 acres to roam free, and Tara just stood in the corner. To me, it really was she was concerned about, about her friend. Then one day, Co-founder Scott Blake carried Bella onto the balcony so she and Tara could at least see each other. And Bella's tails hurt, you know, and, and we had no choice but to bring Bella down to see Tara. <laughs> they visited like this every day till Bella could walk. Wow. Today, their love and trust is stronger than ever. <laughs> Bella even lets Tara pet her tummy with her foot. They harbor no fears, no secrets, no prejudices. Just two living creatures who somehow manage to look past their immense differences. Take a good look, America. Take a good look, world. If they can do it, what's our excuse? Oh my God, oh, so good. Finally, it's enough. Okay, you guys have 10 minutes. Go at it, pick one of these you want to use, and then right after that, go ahead and take a 10 minute break, okay? So we'll kind of come together, let's say 17 minutes and. And we'll figure it out, okay? Go to it, my friends. All right, thank you. So, let's uh, figure out our table time video parables. Any group like to go first? Again, there's no right or wrong. Share with us what you have, and, and God will use that to glorify his name in some way or another. All right. As most of you. There you go. Oh, I don't need that. You may as not. Most, as most of you know, it's probably all love the dog and the elephant. So we love that. I tear up, seriously, in all seriousness. I, I showed that in chapel once, and I, I seriously tear up with a lot oh, of yeah, these stories. It's fabulous. Uh, so we talked about the Lord oh, oh, oh. We, oh, you can hear me? <coughs> we talked about loving others 
uh, and that we all don't need to be alike. Um, inside, we're all the same to make judgments. There are judgments also about us. There are also lots of, but Jesus loves us all. We're all the inside and out, and we love that. Thank you. Who'd like to go next? Go over here. Tell us first which uh, which of the two stories did he use? We chose what we look at it when the kids love Regardless of reason. One video that I, I have with me, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to show these, but I'm not going to show it. It's about a 96-year-old man in Minnesota who still plays hockey. And that, that's a cool story, too. Who would like to go next? Let's go. We'll go here first. Um, I'm sure a lot of y'all know, but have heard the quote, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather someone walk be than with nearly show the way. And I think, again, when we follow the lady, she, for like four, gener three generations of her children, her grandchildren, and then children, she probably didn't know it except for the work that she did. She always felt that when you were saying we worship by how we live, I think she was a wonderful example. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Very well said. Who's got it over here? I know you're moving along. I know we're moving along, so one small little nutshell. Which video did you choose? The dog and the elephant? We love them. Both of them were good. You combine both of them. That's awesome. Well said. Who's next? Let's go over here and we'll do this. The group didn't really agree with this one because I just thought of it afterwards. But this is on the elephant and the dog. It's really sad. An elephant and a dog can get along, but an elephant and a dog can't. And a donkey. Oh. Yeah. Very well said. I like generation to the contrary they're worthy to be loved and to be taught and so it's a great thing I love the uh, I love the elephant and the donkey line that, that's classic um, but but I, I, I love dogs and, and I honestly get a little bit emotional when I watch that video I kind of tear up when I see the elephant standing there wanting to go in the house and and the dog comes out and the elephant starts responding I mean that's that's an awesome thing too so a lot of good ones in that so with that said 
trying to get into my iPad. Technology is a great thing, though it doesn't matter. So, let me take you back to the year 1982. We're going to uh, Southern California. Larry Walters is the guy's name. He's a, a truck driver. But ever since he was a little kid, he wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to specifically uh, enroll in the Air Force Academy. But there was one, one problem, and that was the fact that his eyesight wasn't very good. In fact, his eyes were so bad that he couldn't get a private pilot's license. But in an effort to achieve a long time, lifetime, Larry Walters thought back to a visit to a local Army-Navy surplus store, and he saw these large weather balloons for sale. And Larry Walters figured out that if he laid on a lounge chair in his backyard, and he affixed several of these large helium-filled balloons to his aluminum lawn chair, then he could achieve flight. He spent weeks studying the wind patterns over his home, and on July 2nd, that's the same July 2nd is when the Declaration of Independence was read. Remember that? Larry Walters, he was ready for flight. Now, Larry Walters, he had several friends at his home to help him get off the ground, literally. He attached 42 helium-filled balloons, each one six feet in diameter, to his aluminum lawn chair. Now, to add stability, he affixed to the lawn chair 35 melt jugs filled with water. Now, the source of his bravado may have been the fact that he consumed a, a lot of adult beverages before he attempted to stop. And he had it planned perfectly, or so he thought. And this is what it was going to look like in his eyes. He would sit in the lawn chair. He would have his friends untether it to the ground. He would soar up to about 1,000 feet. That was his goal. wasn't sure if he was going to get that high or not. In his lap, he held a pellet gun. Can't go wrong with that. When he was ready to come down, true story, he would simply shoot at the balloons, the helium level would go down, and he would be able to softly land on terra firma. His plan, his friends, they planned this as well. They were excited. He sat in his lawn chair, was held down, tied down by two large ropes. He gave the signal. One of his two buddies cut the first rope. Another buddy then cut the other rope. Larry Walters could feel the tug of the helium Fully pulling him upward, drifting into the sky. True story, this is a picture that someone snapped. It's a good picture. Okay, I got it here. A lot of balloons there. Now, the jolt was so great that the other ropes that were holding him down, they snapped, and Larry's lounge chair or lawn chair lunged into the sky. The force was so great his glasses fell off, so he didn't have his glasses as he went up, up, and away. Now, keep in mind that he was unable to steer the lawn chairs, which just kept going up. His goal of reaching 1,000 feet was quickly realized. In fact, he was climbing at a rate of 1,000 feet per minute. He eventually, true story, reached the dizzying height of 16,000 feet. The wind shifted and sending Larry Walters and his balloon-laden lawn chair into the flight path for LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. Airline pilots on approach into LAX, they contacted air traffic control. They saw a man in a lawn chair with a gun in his lap flying at 16,000 feet. It is true, so you can vouch for this. Now, this was dangerous with all these other planes around because not only was there the risk of collision, but if he was sucked into one of the jet engines, it wouldn't be good for anybody. So after an hour in the sky, Larry Walters realized that he'd better come down. 
With his pellet gun, he started shooting the balloons and he came careening down to the earth. He was okay. He was arrested. <laughs> he was fined $1,500 and some community service. He never tried that stuff again. He was asked to appear, appear on the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. They flew him to New York on the late night with David Letterman. And today, true story, that aluminum lawn chair resides in the San Diego Air and Space Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Can you say anything? Yeah, he can say it's true. Anything else that I said is true, though. Nobody's, nobody said that. It closed the airport. It did close the airport, that's right. Because of a man in a lawn chair and balloons. Interesting stuff. He later in life would look back and say, I, I don't know what I was thinking. The beer obviously had some sort of impact on that. He was amazed, though, how much fame came to him because of this, because of his drunken stunt, all of these news media crews kind of invaded his life momentarily. Uh, with that said, there's a question. When you look back on your life, what is the craziest or the most boneheaded thing that you have ever done? Anybody like to share? Uh, yeah. You got a story, here we go. <laughs> well, as you all know, I'm a chemist, and one of the dumbest things we ever did is a bunch of us decided, because we knew all about chemicals, so we puffed up a huge weather balloon, the same idea, and on the campus of Alabama, full of hydrogen, not helium. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know anything about it, but hydrogen is extremely explosive, and when it goes, it's like a bomb. Well, and we attached a fuse to it, so it would go up, and we deliberately were going to Well, we were lucky. It went up and blew up, and it was like an atomic bomb going off. We were, the only thing is we were extremely fortunate that the wind didn't blow it against one of those buildings. We would have knocked down a very large building because of the blast. So that's one of the craziest, dumbest things we ever did. I love that. <laughs> Great story. What were the repercussions of that? We scattered and we get caught. still looking for you. All right, then, what you got for us? Uh, when I was growing up, my brother and I lived in France. Uh, close to the same river, my dad was. So we were out on our bicycle and moored in the river for a bunch of derelict barges, uh, you know, abandoned. And so my brother and I, being adventurous, found a plank, about a 12 foot plank, and put that on the shore and then on the one of the barges so we could get out on these barges and play on them. Well, of course, you know, they're derelict, and if you fall into the bottom of them, you could fall through, and then you're in the river. So we're there are three barges that are all tied together, and we're having a good time, and decide it's time to get back on shore. The barges had moved, <laughs> and the plank was now down. <laughs> and we're like 12, 13 feet, and there's no way to get back. So we're standing kind of looking at, okay, now what? I think I'm eight. And uh, Frenchman walking off the path saw our plank, went down, got the plank, set it up so that we could get on the barge. But the dangerous thing was, we were climbing around these barges, falling through the bottom of it. We'd probably fall right straight through and we went out here today. <laughs> Never told my parents about this. <laughs> Anyone else want to share your boneheaded moment?
on the, the video. So I thought that I'd handled it really well. Well, a little bit later, I got a call from one of the TV stations. It was the Fox affiliate in Chicago, which is the third largest market in the And he wasn't happy, and he said, you sent us dated material. What are you talking about? And so I went back to the tape, went back to the beginning. I don't know why I didn't think of this, but it was raining. Major, massive thunderstorms in Atlanta on that day. So ESPN, they had three hours to fill, so they replayed last year's. <laughs> <laughs> So, 200 plus Fox affiliates plus the network, they ran footage that happened last year. And um, it wasn't good. Another story, and I won't tell this story. If you want to come up privately, I'll tell you, but I don't want to share it as a, as a group. Um, I was suspended twice with pay from my uh, television job for things I said on the air that I shouldn't have said. Enough of that. Okay, with that said. So that's why you're a minister. That's exactly why I'm a minister. I've been blacklisted from television. So, with that said, we focus on this question. The next one we're not gonna discuss publicly, but I want you to ponder it, okay? The question is this, how do you wanna be remembered? Sadly, some of us might be remembered for some of the, the boneheaded things we've done. But, but truthfully, I dare say that those don't line up with how you want to be remembered. Remember the story of Larry Walters. He, he went up in this lawn chair, and he had some short-term fame, and that's kind of what he wanted to get out of that. But truthfully, he ended up having a, a drinking problem. His wife and kids left him. He ended up driving into the desert, and he killed himself. A horrible, horrible and tragic end to that story. He said, you know what? It's just sad that I'm going to be remembered for that stupid thing I've done instead of being a good husband or a good father or a good friend. But I always like to remember that. How do we want to be remembered? Maybe kind of an eerie, dreary thing at times to think about as we think about our own mortality, but, but how do you want to be remembered? Because the truth is, and we said this last night, that each of us, we were designed by God to be a masterpiece. We were designed with and for a purpose. And very often we get intimidated by that kind of stuff, okay? We talk about God's will for our lives. We think of some sort of big old grand type of thing. Uh, but God's not calling everyone to be a pastor. Not everyone is called to be a, a missionary in a, a foreign country. Not everyone's called to, to sing in the choir or to lead a Bible study. Truthfully, maybe God's call for you, and, and it even changes through various seasons. You might be called to do one thing in one season and, and something else a little bit later. Maybe you're called to, to lead your family or your grandkids or your neighbors into a, a deeper a spiritual understanding of Scripture. Uh, it certainly means that we're called to, to, to go deeper and deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it means understanding our spheres of influence and living in such a way that those people in our sphere of influence will be impacted because of God working in our lives. So uh, we've looked at a, a couple of different passages, all of them so far from Paul, speaking of the transformation that God wants to do in our lives. Now we're going to quickly go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at the book of Ezekiel. Let me give you a little bit of a backstory. as he's going to talk about trans as well. In the Old Testament, we obviously have a lot of letters, a lot of writings from various prophets. And in the scripture, it's broken down into major prophets and minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are no less important than the major prophets. It's simply that their letters are a little bit shorter. Their writings are a little bit more brief, but they're no less important. Ezekiel, though, was one of the major prophets, okay? The other major prophets were um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Those four were kind of the, the major prophets. In 597 B.C., 
Jerusalem was taken by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And Ezekiel, he was a priest. Ezekiel, along with the upper class citizens of Jerusalem, they were exiled into Babylon. Very often when a nation was defeated at war, instead of slaughtering the people or imprisoning the people, they simply loaded them up, took them back to Babylon. Why, why might you exile somebody? What do you think their thinking was with that? There are two points. Why, why would you exile somebody? Slavery was one of them, absolutely. Uh, and then you had the flip side of, of slavery. King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, knew that there were a lot of great Israelites who were really smart. And so we're going to take them back to Babylon because they're smart. They've got some good ideas. Uh, maybe they can help us. So that was part of it. And then the, the, the other reason for being in exile or, or putting taking somebody into exile, it was the fact that, that you were pulling them away from their homeland. They had this sense of being defeated. Families were split apart. Someone may be sent to one part of Babylon. The other members of the family might go to another part of Babylon. It was a whole lot cheaper than having to imprison them. In many cases, they didn't want to enslave them because they didn't maybe have necessarily the, the need to do that. But by, by doing that, they kind of broke the resolve of the Israelites. They weren't able to be together. And remember, I mentioned that that very often the Israelites, they weren't just there you know, on, a, on an island. They, they were surrounded by other people. This is when it was really, really important and imperative to remember that God's saying, don't be like those people. Man, it is hard not to be like those people when you are forced to live with those people. And so that's one of the reasons that people were exiled. It broke their resolve. It split apart their country. In many cases, splitting apart their family. But Ezekiel, in, in this passage, he's speaking of a future, a prophecy that God has given, that, that, that things eventually are going to be okay. Remember, um, in the book of Jeremiah, one of the most famous passages, Jeremiah 29, 11. What does it mean? Anybody, anybody remember that? I have plans for you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was speaking to the people. We love Jeremiah 29, 11. If, if I have to sign a birthday card for somebody, I'll put Jeremiah 29, 11. It's this really upbeat, feel-good passage written by Jeremiah to the people of Jerusalem. Now, if you go back just a handful of verses before he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Just a few verses before that, he tells the people, you're going to be stuck in exile for 70 more years. And just when you think that God has forgotten about you, I know the plans I have for you, says God. It wasn't this real cheerful ending to a, a story that, that they're going to go experience freedom right then and there. No, God was saying, you've got to be patient. Some of you aren't even going to make it. But, but your grandchildren will. Other people will. But it's going to be a long time before we experience that. But despite the waiting, despite the fact that things aren't going the way you want them to go now, I know the plans I have for you, says God. So with that said, we're going to Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. Ezekiel's writing this. God is telling him what to say. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, God is speaking corporately here to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. God is going to do something in you and with you, Ezekiel is telling these folks. God is telling them that, that, that maybe they have a heart of stone as a nation, and that's one of the reasons the nation was uh, defeated, because God said, look, if you guys don't pay attention to what I'm telling you, I'm trying to protect you, trying to keep you holy, 
But, but if you turn your back on me, man, it's going to be rough. The consequences are not going to be good. And yet the Israelites would continually turn their back on God. They would be defeated. They'd be driven into exile. People would cry out to God. God being uh, loving and compassionate and filled with mercy, he would redeem. He would rescue the people. They would say, yeah, we love God. Go God. He, he brought us back home. But then after a while, when things were going really well, they forgot about God. They started to rely on themselves. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, there are two sins that you find more and more than any other. One is oppressing the poor. Okay, you don't want to do that. Number two is the sin of self-reliance. I can do it myself. I don't need God. Or when things are going really well, it's because I'm a well-educated, smart, creative, hard-working guy. Uh, but, but where's the glory to God in that? And so the same cycle went over and over and over again. The Israelites, the Jewish people, they would be defeated. They'd cry out to God, eventually brought back home. Things would go well. They'd be prosperous. They would turn their back on God. And the whole cycle over and over and over again. So God is telling them, look, you guys have a heart of stone. That's why you're here. That's why you're in exile, because you forgot about me. You weren't faithful. You weren't obedient. You weren't caring. And so this is why you ended up this way. So what does it mean when someone has a heart of stone? Anybody? Very self-centered, very uncaring. Stubborn, yeah. Anyone else? What is the opposite of a heart of stone? Yeah. A soft and a tender heart. Yeah. A heart, when Ezekiel was writing this in that day and age, it wasn't just a place of internal feelings, okay? It represents really all of our personality and our desires. So when we say, um, I'm giving my heart to Jesus, that means all that we are. Not just a, a little sentimentality over here. It means, Jesus, you're getting the whole thing because I'm giving you my heart. God is telling the, pe the, the people who are exiled in Babylon that, that he's going to replace our infected parts. Okay, in this case, the heart. But again, that means something greater than that. means all that you believe, all that you are. Uh, God's going to give them maybe new appetites, new passions. Or at the very least, God's going to purify and refine what is already there. And he's saying, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to renew your minds. I'm going to enlighten your understanding. I'm going to correct your judgment. I'm going to refine your will so that you shall have a new spirit to accentuate your new heart. I'm going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. One that can feel, one that can enjoy, one that can feel love of God and to other people. That's what God is doing in us, continually refining, continually transforming our heart, all that we are, so that we can live a faithful and obedient life. Now, with that said, anyone here a Georgia Tech fan? Anybody here good at Georgia Tech? Anybody a Georgia Tech fan? You got one. Okay, got two. Can I hear three? Anybody? We're just, we're two. Let me tell you a story, and if you know this, if you're a Georgia Tech fan, don't, don't shout this out, okay, because you probably know this. Maybe not. But back in 1927, there was a guy named Ed Smith. He was a high school senior in Augusta, Georgia. He was set to go to college at Georgia Tech. They had accidentally sent him two enrollment forms. He decided that he was going to have fun with it. He sent in the real one. But then he made up a fictitious student, and he enrolled this fictitious student in some of the Georgia Tech classes. No one caught on. He used the name George Burdell. George Burdell. 
After enrolling George Burdell, Smith signed up him for the same classes that he was taking. So they would be doing their schoolwork together. So uh, this, this college freshman at this point from Augusta, Georgia, he would do his homework, he would do his writing assignments, then he would do it again a little bit differently so that this Burdell guy could turn in his paperwork, this fictitious student that this guy made up. When he had to take a test, he would take it twice and turn it in under both names. And Burdell, this made-up student, he graduated in three years. A few years later, true story, he had enough coursework to earn a master's degree from Georgia Tech. But the legend continued to grow. During World War II, George P. Burdell served in the armed forces, believe it or not, on many fronts, his name, true story, appearing in the newspaper of this brave American fighting overseas. He was listed on the flight crew of a B-17 bomber, according to federal records. Twelve missions he flew were over Europe with the 8th Air Force in England. Now, the Georgia Tech graduate became the new operations officer for this crew. He immediately recognized the name, and Burdell's flying days were over. In 2001, Time Magazine was attempting to name their person of the year. That was the year, obviously, I think George W. Bush, he won it that year. That was the Gulf War year. Um, no, that's not right. That'd be 10 years after that. So, but, but, but Bush was one of the guys who was the leading frontrunner. Who was the frontrunner? George Burdell, the leading candidate. People could go and they could vote. 57% of the people voted for this fictitious person, this totally made-up guy. Finally, Time Magazine realized that they, they, they pulled him down so nobody could vote for him anymore. George P. Burdell, his name is still rampant on the Georgia Tech campus. If you go to a football game, you will hear oh, just every time somebody is paging, George P. Burdell, please pick up the right currency <laughs> from he was actually listed as a board member for Mad Magazine. Checks, checks that were sent out by the Kraft Corporation, they have their accounting office indicator. They're signed, true story, by George P. Burdell. But this whole guy is a lie. He's made up. He's not real. Sometimes, maybe I feel that way. I don't know if you feel that way, but I kind of feel that way. But the, I just feel kind of angry. Maybe I'm just kind of coasting through life, going through the motions. Do I really feel the hope and the joy that only God can bring about? Maybe at times we, we try to put on a mask. I mean, think about this question. I, I would dare say every single one of you has probably done this a time or two. You get to church on Sunday morning, one of the greeters, maybe somebody in the hall, maybe in your Sunday school class, uh, they'll say, hey, how's it going? And what do you say? Almost always. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Does that mean you're always doing fine? What if you had a, an argument with your spouse on the way to church? What, what if your kids were cranky and didn't want to go to church? What if you're just stressed? Maybe you're dealing with anxiety or depression, or maybe you lost a job, or maybe you're awaiting some, some test results from the doctor. We're, we're not doing fine. And to fake that, we're just kind of going through the motions, being like this George P. Burdell. We don't really exist. The person that we want to exude is not the person that we are. One of the things with Facebook, and Facebook is a great way to communicate and keep in touch, but there's some negative things with it as well. You always see the highlight reel from somebody else's life. You see the good stuff. You see about their kids and the parties they're going to, and they go on vacation and have these beautiful family pictures, and their family's oh so loving and wonderful and close-knit when maybe your family isn't. 
or maybe they're doing stuff with other friends and you weren't invited. That kind of brings us down. And you look at these people who seem to have these perfect lives. They've got everything together, and that's what we, that's what we compare to our lives. And truthfully, we can't live up to the Facebook friends that, that, that people are emulating about their lives. And the truth is, their lives aren't always that great, but they, they kind of highlight some of the better parts. When I was in television, I was on the air for four minutes, twice a night, five nights a week, okay? Hundreds and hundreds of hours in a given year. But when I would want to apply for a job at a, a larger station, I would take uh, all of the, the footage from all of my stuff, hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I would have to pull out the best stuff, having maybe eight minutes of a demo tape. Got about eight minutes to try to impress uh, a news director at another station. So hundreds of hours on the air, I could move it down just to eight. Okay, and send that out. My eight minutes are going to look good, okay? Because I've got at least eight minutes that are decent. The, the other may not be any good at all. It's kind of like when I get to, uh, to preach in the big church, okay? Two Sundays ago, I got to, to preach in the sanctuary, and I love coming down there. And I love it because, truthfully, I've got like four good sermons I've ever done. And so maybe four times a year, I'll be down in the sanctuary, and you get the good sermon because that's all I got, okay? But the people in chapel, they, they see the bad Joe a lot. You guys down in the down the hill, so to speak, you see, yeah, I've got four good sermons. Now, if Tom asked me to preach next year, I'm going to have to say no, because I don't have any more good sermons left. <laughs> but, but, but all I have to say is that very often we see the best in people, but, but we don't see the ways in which maybe they're struggling or suffering or hurting, because maybe at times we are suffering or struggling or hurting. And so we're, we're kind of living a lie. How are you doing? Oh, we're great. Make the family look good and, and, and get to, to Sunday morning. And how are you doing? Oh, we're doing fine. Maybe you're not. Maybe at times you're allowing the expectations that others have on you to dictate who you think we need to be. Maybe we allow our culture to, to give us our identity. Because if we don't allow God to do that, our culture, our society will love to do that. I think about my 12-year-old my son. He, he started a new school in sixth grade last year, and he, he made a lot of friends. It was hard for him, but to move down to a, a new school and a new church and a new community and new ball teams and all of this stuff. And he got bullied by some kids at school, and that really hurt him. And um, he was thinking, man, nobody likes me. They don't like the new kid. They all grew up together, and, and they're all these friends, and I'm kind of the outcast. He allowed the others to dictate who he is. Okay, He's not like that. He's a, he's a great, smart, athletic, wonderful personality. He loves Jesus. He loves being in worship, he loves studying scripture. He wears a big cross around his neck when he plays baseball. He steps into the batter's box with his bat. He makes a cross in the sand. He's a neat kid. He's not perfect, far from it. Despite having a perfect DNA from a father, he is far from perfect. Okay? But at times, he allows others to dictate or to identify who he is. And so Ezekiel is saying, look, don't, don't tell, don't, or don't let the, the Babylonian culture tell you what is cool and not. Don't let the Babylonians tell you what dictates success and what doesn't. And that's the big problem the Jewish people had. Against, uh, again, uh, they weren't living in a vacuum. They weren't living on a desert island with only fellow Jewish people. They were in cultures with a lot of other pagan people who did some really crazy and some really outlandish and some really disgusting. And so the Israelites were, at times, uh, allowing these people to influence them. And Ezekiel saying, look, look, don't do Okay, last night we looked at Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. We studied uh, Philippians 1.6. And now we're going to jump ahead a few verses to verses 9 
10 and 11. Okay, this is my prayer. This is what Paul is writing. That you may, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, last night we talked about the letter that Paul had written. This is obviously a part of that. He prayed, remember, he prayed for the people in Philippi. He was writing from a Roman prison. He wasn't able to be with them, to, to lead them, to guide them, to be in this koinonia fellowship with them. But here, he's telling them what he prayed. In previous verses, he's saying, I prayed for you. What did he pray? Well, we're going to find out. What an excellent prayer it is. Very often when we pray, we, we lift up the concerns that we have. Okay, and nothing wrong with that. that. That's awesome. We need to go to God with those things. We pray for our hurts or our battles or our scars or our illnesses, the, the physical things we need, or maybe the emotional, relational things that we need. Here, Paul is saying, I prayed for you to experience joy. That's what I wanted you to have. Most of the choices that a spiritual believer faces are not necessarily right or wrong. It's just varying degrees of those things. In other words, I dare say that, that, that when we're through with our time together this morning, I'm not going to go out and, just for lack of a better, I'm not, not going to go visit a brothel and get drunk or anything, okay? I'm not going to do that. But does that mean I'm not going to, you know, that's like, a, like an extreme thing in ours. Uh, but, but am I going to be faithful and obedient and patient for all that God wants me to do? I hope so, but, but, but what if I, I call my son and, and he didn't study for a test and he made a bad grade? I'm, I'm going to be frustrated. Am I going to handle that in a Christ-like manner? I hope so, but sometimes I don't. And so very often we're dealing with things like that, varying degrees. Should I be upset with my son? Yeah, I think so. But, but how should I, should, should I shame him? Should I belittle him? No, how can I respond in a Christ-like way? So Paul is urging the Christians in Philippi to continue growing in their love for God and for others more and more. They're going to dig deeper. They're going to gain a knowledge of Scripture. They're going to get a deeper knowledge of faith. And that is something that God says, I have placed in your hearts, that desire to grow you. There are men and women and children who have given their lives to following Christ, but Paul here is stressing still more to come. Just as the human body continues to grow, if it's healthy, the Christian believer, if healthy, will continue to grow. Now, we have boundaries and we have guidelines with which we live, and real change, those starts when we have this relationship with Christ. Our, our, our lives as Christians are not supposed to be sin management, okay? We don't want sin. We have to manage our lives so that we avoid that. But, but God is not just saying, okay, be good people, okay? Because the truth is we can't, aside from Christ, not in the perfect and the holy nature and holy God. God didn't send Jesus into this world so that we can be better good people, better morally pure people. Now, I hope that, that we're going to live like that because that's a byproduct of what Christ has done in our lives. But, but it starts with this relationship. The more that we grow in love for Christ, the more that he will begin to change our hearts. These stone hearts are now loving hearts to change our desires from the inside out. Okay, and this, excuse me if I mention something that doesn't seem good, but I think back to my college days, there were a lot of college students doing things they shouldn't do. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah. Now, let's go to that 100-year-old teacher 
Okay, chances are she's probably not doing a lot of things that the college kids are doing. Is that fair to say? Why is that? Is it because those things aren't fun anymore? Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe she can look back and say, man, I was a wild, rebellious college student when I wasn't 100 years old. But the truth is she's 100. She, thinks, she sees things differently. She's grown. She's matured. Things that she desired earlier in life, she no longer desires. Okay, and we think, okay, she's not going to probably get drunk or, or do drugs or something like that. Uh, but, but in many cases, uh, what is it that God wants us to grow in? Again, it may be controlling our anger. It, it may be with how we spend our money or how we spend our time. What, what do we do when you know, somebody around us is hurting? Do, do we offer compassion and mercy and care, or do we just try to, to, to isolate them or, or forget about it? Because when we start following Jesus, God says that we're no longer the same person. The scripture says we are a new creation. The old person has gone along with things that are, that old person craved and desired. God is saying, I'm going to put new cravings, new desires in your life. Will we have the same temptation and desires? Yeah, in many cases we will. But as we grow and grow, we find that those temptations often are less and less. Because the truth is, and you all know this, that God is a God who loves us. He's a God that doesn't tolerate, doesn't like sin. It has to be dealt with. Certainly there are tons of consequences for what we do. But God sent his only son to pay for the sins on the cross that, that you and I have engaged in. If you continue in my word, though, Jesus said the truth will give you a new kind of freedom. It's interesting. Often we think about a Christian life as a life of freedom. The scripture just said that we're free from the bondage of sin. We're, we're free from the bondage of shame. Uh, we're no longer held captive by what people think. We're no longer held captive by, by these, these sinful desires or lusts or or motivations. So becoming like Christ, God says, it is going to take this process, this ongoing perpetual motion. It's a process. It's going to continue growing just as we continue growing. That we are, as we said last night, we're a work in progress. Jesus didn't die on the cross, friends, so that we could live comfortable, well-adjusted. Maybe that's what we desire. There's anything wrong with that. But the purpose of Christ is so much deeper than that. He wants us to make us like himself. Not only when to heaven, for the days in which we live our life. So here's what we're going to do. I think we're going to be okay. I'm going to give you, um, I'll give your group, let's say seven minutes, okay? When we do this. Here's um, here's our final table time for the morning, okay? And, and what time do we need to be back here this afternoon? Six? Six o'clock right here. Uh, we're going to take a few minutes to do this and a few minutes of table time, then, then I'll pray for us and, and we'll be out the door, okay? So get ready. This is not uh, like anything else we've seen, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> 
I want you to do something to stop the pain, either fill the tooth or pull it. Oh, gosh. Uh, I see. See? Yeah, I just see in dental school and filling and pulling, I only got C's. Perfect kind of man. <laughs> <laughs> I got A's and C's, though. You want me to clean for you? <laughs> Will it stop the pain? No, it'll look great. What? <laughs> Give me the C. Give me the C. C. Oh, boy. Gosh, uh, uh, I cheated on my final. <laughs> and besides, I had monitored most of the last semester, so I didn't get a chance to work on people like the other guys, so most of my work was just other animals. I don't, I don't care about animals. Just please fix this tooth. Yeah, it isn't the same working on animals and people. I, Doctor, I don't care. I don't care about the pain. Please. Well, just give it a try. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Lucado. He's a Christian author, and um, he, a few years ago, he wrote a book called You Are Special. My wife uses that when she teaches, like, you know, little kids at Sunday school. She's not supposed to, but she uses it when she deals with some of the kids at school. Uh, she's a school counselor. Um, if she knows that their parents are okay with it, for example. But it's a really neat book about how, as kids, we're, we're called to get our identity from God and not from 
you know, other people or the expectations that people place on us. Uh, so Max Lucado wrote a book, um, and really it then turned into a, an animated TV series, a really well critically acclaimed uh, children's television animated series. And the two main characters are people that we've seen this weekend. One of the characters is Tim Conway. The other is Don Knotts. We saw him last night. So Tim Conway, Don Knotts, they are the stars of this children's animated program about being a Christ-like child. So I kind of gained a newfound respect for, uh, for um, Barney Fife. What's his name? Don Knotts and, and now Tim Conway. Tim Conway, sadly, died in May of this year. He was 85. Um, and there was a nasty family battle because his children, they thought that they should inherit his money. They wanted uh, whatever conversion, whatever it's called, where they wanted to control what dad was doing and his hospitalization. Uh, but his wife also wanted, so the big family nasty clash. Either way, who would like to, uh, who'd like to go first? We're going over here at this table. Tell us what you can do with uh, the dentist from the Carol Burnett show. How is that a modern day Carol? We thought. Bible and the Good point. I like that. Well done. <laughs> Who wants to go after that? Okay. You guys are a smart group. Well, this group was like pulling teeth. <laughs> so um, we decided that there there were two people who had a lot of fears. And there was one that fearful because of his lack of preparation and his inability to perform. And the second one was fear because of the pain, because he had waited too long to address the situation. And we thought that God came to the rescue and saved the day because the one didn't have to perform and the other, the mercy of God, made the tooth fall out. So, <laughs> we said that the fear of the dentist is well-founded. I like that. Who would like to go next? You got it. We talked about uh, the fact that there are a lot of excuses for not being equipped to do what needed to do. A lot of times we made it to evangelize, do the things that we could. Uh, even though he didn't feel prepared, he was prepared. He could have. Looked at the book. Uh, we have the book. And so we should be prepared also to the job that we're all set. You're next. You guys are on the ball. This is so cool. We kind of thought you had to have a little, and that you probably will try to show that being the case for help. Be flexible. So the upbeat stuff. You're having on. All right, there. Yeah, we decided that patience go away was the right one. <laughs> But we also thought that, like me, that. Well said. Is everybody going? Oh, that's right. Last, but certainly not least. Many ideas, many discussions, ranging teenagers like pulling teenagers or parables. No matter how much we screw up, no matter how much we mess up, no matter how many times we get it wrong, even when we get numb trying to figure out what I'm trying to do. Well said, sir. I'd just like to report, apropos of this whole thing, Rose chose the oh. presentation and lost a crowd. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Interesting. Interesting. Well done. 
And you guys are a rock solid. Let's go back here. Um, I actually made my family watch that video, and we kind of did the same thing. And I'll share some of their their findings. I understand that Tom is an excellent woodworker, and he knows all about really good glue, and he might be able to help Rose with a new crown. <laughs> I like that. He's doing it. Here's some things, I guess four things that, that when I watched this with my family, we, we kind of came up with, and you guys are, are just, you're hitting it out of the park with your stuff. You guys are just, you're very deep theologically, but you have a lot of fun, you have some really creative, just practical application, which is so important. Um, my son, he said, Dad, it kind of reminds me of that dentist because, Dad, you're always telling me that sometimes we're numb to And that, that's what he came up with out of that. My wife noted, and she's just a, a very spirit-filled woman and um, who has a lot of mercy to put up with me, but she said, um, Joe, that you notice how often the, the, the doctor messed up all the mistakes that he made, and yet the patient's still there. That's like God. No matter what we do, God is still there nearby. Um, I was thinking about, we talk about each of us being a part of the body of Christ, okay? That we're all part of the same body. We have different parts. And the truth is, a tooth is, is a very, very small part of your body. But when you have a toothache, man, nothing is worse. I mean, it's a really, really bad thing. And just like we're all part of the body of Christ, if one person isn't living out their calling to be a part of that, that body, the rest of the body suffers. And so I think that's an important thing to realize as well. And, and the only other thing I thought of, too, is that the guy, Harvey Corman, he craved healing. Um, if you look in the, the New Testament, what, what language is that written again? Greek. Okay, the Greek word for salvation is sozo, S-O-Z-O. It's a Greek word that means salvation. You know what the same word is for the word healing? It's sozo, S-O-Z-O. So, if you're reading the New Testament in Greek, Whenever it talks about one's salvation, sozo is. Whenever you hear about somebody receiving healing, sozo is the word. You've got to find that fascinating because God, or Jesus, is the great physician, the great healer. And when we do experience salvation, then certainly God is healing maybe those, those hurting, broken parts of our lives. And so I think of a, of a doctor, in this case a wacky dentist, sozo. Um, so with that said, we are going to wrap up with... Uh, a song, and then we're going to let Tom speak, and he's going to give us some further instructions for this evening. One thing that, that somebody talked about with me last night, I know our session is at 6 tonight, we'll clarify that with Tom later on, but um, if anybody wants to uh, to come by, maybe let's say like 5.30, I'll be in here, and, and maybe if you mention any people for whom we want to pray, or maybe situations which we want to pray, and, and we can do that real quickly. I brought some, um, this is anointing oil, it's frankincense, oddly enough, from Bethlehem. And um, when I pray with people, I just like to put a little dab of oil on their forehead. It, it represents the anointing of God, which is the, the presence and movement of God. So if you want to do that, just come by 530, we'll do it in here. Okay, our closing song is one of the newer songs you'll find in the United Methodist hymnal. The song was written in 1979 by a 31-year-old Roman Catholic. A friend that came to him and said, hey, we're having an ordination service in two days. You're a songwriter. Can you write a song for us? So with two days' notice, he put together a song. It's number 593 in the United Methodist hymnal. He wanted to speak of Jeremiah, who was talking about the fact that each of us has been called by God. 
different reasons, different purposes. But remember, God saved us from something, and therefore God saved us for something. So as we sing this song, let us remember that. Uh, the song is, Here I Am, Lord. Why don't we stand if we're able and uh, proclaim these words. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the hymnal. We'll also have it up on the big screen as well. So here I am, Lord. I pray that each of us can sing this as a bold declaration to receive the invitation that God is setting forth.